This episode is an interview with Professor Richard Bilodeau. The topic will be design thinking and how it applies to entrepreneurship. Our favorite tools for entrepreneurs podcast addresses tools and concepts that are useful for the launch and growth of entrepreneurial ventures. Your two hosts will be Professor Gary Palin and serial entrepreneur Ryan Budden. Welcome, Professor Richard Bilodeau. Professor Bilodeau and I are colleagues for the past seven years. You have quite a bit of accolades in teaching. You have a number of outstanding teacher awards. You're also a practitioner in the field of entrepreneurship. You've even started some businesses that made money. It's true. You're a prolific researcher also. I'm looking for something you can't do well. There's a field that I think is very interesting is design thinking, which you have a tremendous amount of expertise and you've done quite a bit of research in this field. I know your course in design thinking is extremely popular among the students. To start, would you just give a description of what is design thinking? Sure. Well, thank you, Gary and Ryan, for having me today. I really do like design thinking. And design thinking is this approach to designing anything that is really rooted in what users or customers want. So it's a very intentional process. It's got five steps. It begins with empathy, getting out and hearing from your audience, really developing a deep and rich understanding of what's important to them. What are their needs, wants, and demands? What are their issues, problems, and challenges? And understanding both the hows, but also the whys of how people are likely to behave in the marketplace. From there, we take that understanding and we go into definition where we try to get really clear about defining the problem. As you can imagine, often the problem we think initially exists is very different than the problem that does exist. After we're clear on the problem, we go to ideation where we brainstorm lots of good ideas and then evaluate the one we think has the most opportunity or potential. Then we go to prototyping. And this is not the type of prototype that engineers create. This is a visualization of what your solution could be. So you can enter the fifth and final step, which is testing, where you go back to those users and you say, hey, did I get it right? And if you got it right, great. And if you didn't, you might have to back up through all of the prior steps and do it all over again until you do it right. But I really like design thinking because it ensures that anything that we make really is rooted in what our customers or their marketplace might want. One of my areas of research is looking at business failure. One of the things that's interesting in the 70% of businesses that fail within five years of launch, one of the top three reasons is always there's no market need for the thing that they're trying to bring out to customers. And so they get to the market only to find out their customers didn't want the thing that they created. Often I find businesses are very sort of focused on what they think the market needs. They're not engaging in customer-centric decision-making. When I teach marketing, this is a theme I drill into my students' head. Don't make anything unless you know someone else wants it. It's nice that you might want it, but you got to make sure other people want it because they're going to pay you for it. And your simple desire to have it isn't necessarily going to make you a success. So really design thinking gets us into that customer-centric decision-making process because it's at the heart of the entire process. Well, on the concept of age before beauty, Ryan, why don't you ask the first question? You really hit it. Design thinking for me was a new concept when Gary brought up bringing you on this podcast. I did some basic research and really listening to you describe it. It's exactly what entrepreneurs should be doing. Reaching out to customers and you nailed it when you said 
the fact that it's important because they're the ones that are going to pay you for it. It's all fantastic. We all want to make improvements in our own lives. But if you're really trying to make a go at it in entrepreneurship, you've got to find something that's going to bring money in the front door. Absolutely. And I think so often businesses get that wrong. Years ago, I did some counseling for the Small Business Development Center and the Center for Entrepreneurship here in Southern Maine. And I remember one day the director of the center came to me and said, I have this interesting client. Do you think you could work with him? He's struggling in the marketplace. So I said, sure. So this guy shows up. Of course, what I should have said is, what's he trying to bring to market? But naively, I just said, sure. So this guy shows up and he has these ties that he's painted clowns on. And so I say to him, hmm. Well, what research did you do beforehand to see if anyone was interested in a clown tie? And he said, well, none. I just love them. And so, of course, over the next year, I think he might have sold a dozen clown ties, but he spent his entire life savings producing the ties. It was one of those examples for me of you have an idea that you're in love with, and this person was very passionate about these ties. I mean, if he could sell a tie, one tie at a time individually, he might have been successful, but there was no way he was ever going to find success in the mass market. And even in a very niche or segmented market, it was going to be a struggle. You could imagine the tie might do well at some gag gift shop, but unfortunately, since he hand painted them, he had to sell them for like $79 a tie to make wow. any type of money back. And I'm like, okay, well... You've made a clown out of yourself, dude, because you're not going to be successful in the marketplace. So in that typical form, I send the person out and say, sorry, do some research next time. Really make sure you know what the marketplace wants. Talk to some customers or potential users. Get to know who's in your audience. Figure out what jobs they need done. I can guarantee you none of them relate to a clown tie. This person did not learn his lesson. Two years later, he came back and he was painting Elvises on ties instead of clowns. And so anyway, he's one of my favorite examples to use in class. In fact, I used to have one of his clown ties because he gave me one as a gift for offering him some advice. And unfortunately, all the paint eventually chipped off of it. So it lost its visual effect in class. But I can still share the tale because to me, it was very interesting interesting how this person really convinced himself that selling clown ties was an opportunity. It's easy when you're an entrepreneur, if you're in love with an idea. And I find that this is particularly true in technology. Like when I'm meeting with entrepreneurs that think they have some idea for some new technology, they instantly are madly in love with technology. It's really funny. I was doing some consulting for a woman who is trying to start up a dating app. And one of the things that she was considering doing in the dating app is she made up this persona of the person everyone wants to date. And she was going to name the dating app after the persona. And I remember once we were in a meeting and I was like, well, tell me why you think this thing's going to work. And she went, well, Richard, I love this app more than I love my husband. She had fallen so in love with her own idea that she thought it was the greatest love of her life. And of course it failed. And so my job with her was to really work through an exit strategy. She actually had developed a bit of clever matching technology. The exit strategy to save her big investment was to find someone to buy the technology she developed to deploy it someplace else. And that was really the only reason why she came out whole. Otherwise she would have lost a whole bunch of money. She'd mortgaged her house and maxed out her credit cards. 
And it was really interesting to hear her speak so passionately about this character she created. But when we went out and did user testing, no one else thought the character was that good. I think this is often the dose of medicine that is the hardest for entrepreneurs to swallow because we like the things we create. But then when we find out no one else likes them, it's tough. One of the reasons I teach design thinking early on in my venture creation course, and I also have embedded it in my marketing course, I want us to get into the mindset of ask the audience first. It's great to have an idea, but ask the audience first. We used to have this model where we went from idea to building branding and marketing. Obviously, that costs a lot of money. And when we fail, that often leads to bad circumstances because we have no resources left to either reinvent or reimagine ourselves or to do something new. One thing I like to say in this pipeline, idea to customer, don't build brand or market a single thing until your customers have told you your concept is good. And if and only if they say it's good, then you move forward with building branding and marketing. Often, this is counterintuitive to the way entrepreneurs think because we want to just jump into the marketplace and we want to be innovative and we want to be moving quickly forward. You need that energy for lots of elements of starting, launching, and growing a venture. But when you're first trying to figure out if what you have is a real opportunity, it's a moment to slow down a little bit and pause and go back and say, hey, marketplace, do you share my love of this thing? If no one does, you're better off figuring out something that the market loves than bringing something forward that only you love. You're correct in saying technology entrepreneurship is very often guilty of this mistake. Where I see technologists are looking to do version two, version three, version four, trying to perfect the technology in isolation from feedback of the customers. Absolutely. For example, when we think about social media, social media has proven to be an interesting way to get customers engaged. For most businesses, it has not proven to be a good direct conversion channel. So it's become this necessary evil where we have to invest a lot of time and money in it because if we don't have a presence in all these channels, our customers think something's wrong with us. But yet for the vast majority, we're not seeing this direct conversion. So we still need to use these other tools that are available to get customers over the hurdle of opening their wallets. Early on, many of us, particularly those who advertise on social media, were sort of sold a bill of goods about the effectiveness of the channel. And we didn't necessarily do our homework and do our research. And so now we're in a situation where we're forced to live with a product and a tool that serves us on the one hand because it gets us connected to people, but might not serve us that well in terms of directly selling. I was just reading the other day, email is still the number one digital conversion channel. I forget the statistic, but it was something like 73 cents of every dollar made in sales in the digital channel still comes from email. And yet we invest this huge amount of money and effort in social media because now we need to be there. Again, early on, it was very interesting to me that we didn't spend more time evaluating what this channel would ultimately be. So it's a brilliant promotional channel, but I think it still takes something to get people over that last hurdle of purchase. Now, there is some good research that social media can obviously help with retention strategy. So if you can figure out the right platform, find the right influencer, develop the right community, et cetera. To your point, Gary, one of the things that I think is so interesting about technology, I live in a place, Portland, Maine, where 
this ecosystem has tried four or five times to be the Silicon Valley of the East Coast. In every single round, it has failed, largely because the things we produce are things that are not interested to the marketplace. So we have a few companies here that have done really well, but it's just a handful. And a handful can't recreate Silicon Valley. When I think about the number of technology startups that have failed in this region of the country, it's great. And I think largely it's because people, again, they get together and go, this is the best idea I've ever heard of, but they don't validate that idea in any way. That to me is really the important element. The thing that I love about empathy is it creates this great opportunity to not only vet the idea we have, but sometimes it creates this resource for future idea generation. When I lead clients through things like empathy mapping exercises, often they go, oh my God, we didn't think about this, 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 or this, and this is a much better idea. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing that's funny. If you let the audience tell you what they want, you're going to create a better story. It's because you don't have to second guess and you don't have to just only have a theory. You actually can go out and get some evidence. So the other thing that I'll say about empathy, one challenge that we sometimes have in the way in which we instruct marketing, we teach our students that we need to develop customer profiles. And I think that's true when we can do it. But in many cases, we could spend years developing customer profiles, and that's time that probably would not be well spent. So I try to think about, first, I need to know who's in the audience. I can often do that by creating personas, just characters of who's in the audience. If I don't have research tools available, then I have the power of observation and interaction. I was doing a consulting job back in 2019 with a coffee shop. And my favorite thing to do whenever I take on a new consulting client, I put them through the who, what, where, when, why, and how of their customers. So who are your customers? Where do they buy your products? When do they buy your products? Why do they buy your products? Why might they choose the products of your competition? What are they looking for when they buy your products? And how do they use and experience them? And about 60 to 65% of cases, businesses can't answer those simple questions. And my point is, if you don't know who's in your audience, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. So I remember I was working with this coffee shop that was trying to develop a franchise model, and they were struggling getting people wanting to franchise the model. And it was interesting. Here's the who, what, where, when, why, and how. And of course, the two owners were like, oh, we don't know how to answer those questions. And I'm literally sitting in the coffee shop looking around and going, well, I can tell you who's in your audience just sitting here one hour. And they're like, oh, we never thought we could just keep track of our observations and we could interact with people. Exactly. I mean, in some ways, we've made market research so complex that even small businesses think they have to behave like large corporations with these giant budgets. So it becomes this all or nothing proposition. My whole point is answer the who, what, where, when, why, and how questions. Develop personas or characters in the audience. Ask people what their needs are or what jobs need to be done. So what are the things that they need to do when they enter the coffee shop? What are they looking for? And it's through observation, interaction, and really basic research that you can get a sense of who's in the audience, then you can do the work in empathy. Now, I'm a big fan of the empathy map. If you're not familiar with the empathy map, you identify your stakeholder, that persona, you put them in a scenario and you say, okay, in this scenario, what do you think? What do you do? What do you say? And what do you feel? And you just get people to rattle off their thinking, the things they might say or hear, their feelings, and the things they might do. 
And after that, this leads to either the creation of a problem statement or a pains and gains statement. So in this scenario, what's really the pain? What's going to make you look for a solution? And if you found one, what's the gain? And the gain's important because that really links to the value proposition. And as we know, any business that succeeds in the marketplace needs to have a clear, clear value proposition. People need to know why they're trading their dollars for the thing that they're buying. So that value proposition is linked to the perceived value of the product or service you're selling, but also perceived satisfaction. Now, this is another one of those trick boxes we get painted into all the time. Customers' behavior is often based on perception, not reality. And in some cases, perceptions are really close to reality. In some cases, they are very far apart. It's another reason why we use empathy and interaction. So we understand what those perceptions are so that we get a sense of, okay, when I say value or I say benefit, what does that really mean to the audience? As opposed to me simply guessing or me doing, committing the ultimate sin and saying, this is what value means to me. This is what satisfaction means to me. This is what benefit means to me only to find out for many people, they don't share those same definitions. Their perceptions are very different. So I love the empathy map because it allows us, again, to get at the hows and whys of how people behave the way that they do, but also why they feel, think, and act the way that they do. And I think with that information, we've just got this powerful arsenal to go out and really develop things that are going to be interesting to the marketplace. Richard, I can imagine startups will grasp the design thinking concept as they're planning the launch of the business and even the design of their business. How many of the entrepreneurs as they've moved forward and faced some success continually use design thinking as a tool? And how important is that? Yeah, so I think it's a great question. Obviously in my teaching and in my consulting, I encourage everyone to keep a design thinking mindset for the duration of their existence. One of the things that's fascinating, I teach occasionally our undergraduate principles of marketing course. Again, I load a module on design thinking very early in the semester because I think it's good for marketers, it's good for entrepreneurs, startup to big corporation, we all need to be doing more of it and we'd be better served doing it. It's fascinating when I look at alums of the university that I teach at who've gone to start businesses in Southern Maine or in the region, many of them are still using parts of the process or the entire process. I was the other day meeting with a young gentleman who graduated four years ago and has started a business in the organic cannabis growing industry and is thinking about expanding into product types and was using empathy mapping with distributors to find out what sorts of products would be good for the next generation of product. The other thing about the process is once you get comfortable with it, you can use components of it to help you solve problems or challenges. One of the things that I think is also great about design thinking, sometimes we do our work in empathy and we go, yep, let's abandon this idea altogether. It's not going to go anywhere. Anyone who's developing, refining, improving, innovating, anything that they already have in the marketplace, they should also think about this process because it's very easy particularly as an organization grows to get disconnected from our customers. Gary, you teach a course in managing the growing venture. If I were teaching that course, one of my first bits of advice would be don't lose track of who your customers are. Don't get disconnected from them. My own experience 
as an entrepreneur, I right now am a partner in two businesses and I'm trying to launch a third. One of the things I realize in my two established businesses, as I go back through the startup process, we're really disconnected from our customers in some way because we have products and services that have worked. We think, oh, we got that right. And then we move forward in time and we're thinking about cost model optimization and sustainability and the legal and regulatory environment. And we get fixated on going through all the motions of operating the business as we continue to grow, but we often forget and lose sight of the market. It was really interesting. I just had one of my established businesses go back and do an empathy mapping exercise for our customers. And they were like, our customers have really changed in 10 years. But the thing I think is funny, I have a really smart marketing team working for me. And I think I'm a smart person. And I'm like, oh, of course, our customers have changed in 10 years. How naive of us to think they haven't. I got a dose of my own medicine and advice and was like, okay, I've been using this process in my startup. I should be using it in my two ventures that are established because I think it's equally as important to keep track of what's going on in an ever-changing and evolving marketplace. So you've gotten us to buy in that the concept is the core of this. What are some tools or tricks that startups that don't have a customer base can use to get in touch with these theoretical customers? Yep. One of my favorite things to do is say, it's okay to ask your family and friends for their opinions about things. Don't ever go into business with them or take their money because that's a disaster. One of the things that I find interesting, the company that I'm starting up is looking at opportunities in the craft rum space, particularly in the women's market. One of the first things we did is we invited a group of friends who are female to tell us about their experience with spirits and what it's like. And then we're like, well, these people are our friends and they like us. So why don't we ask them to ask friends we don't know? So then you invite your friends to create a potential audience for you that doesn't know you. And you keep doing it. And eventually you get to a point where you lose the effect of people have some vested interest in knowing you. And they're just giving you their real opinions. The other thing that's great through tools like SurveyMonkey, very inexpensively, you can set up these boards that allow you to do a survey. So they have these panels. Now, one of the things you need to know, people are paid to participate in the panel. But one of the things that's interesting, most of the people have no vested interest in what you're selling. I have found that when I do a blind anonymous survey and when I use this SurveyMonkey engagement survey, there's about 80% overlap if I've segmented the audience, right? So I think generally speaking, you can get some pretty good directional information. Now, one of the things I love about the SurveyMonkey platform, you can run a survey for 300 bucks and get 200 responses. Then you can do follow-up. One of the things that we did through a website called Coda.io, we got people to basically create TikTok videos responding to a series of questions that we asked them. And then the audience uploaded their TikTok videos and we were able to do some voice to text mining, looking for keywords, but then we were also able to review them and code them and see people's interactions and how they were responding. And if they said they were happy, did they really look happy, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, technology has actually enabled us to do an okay job at gathering important intel. I often say when people are like, I don't know where to get started, don't forget the power of your observation. 
let's say you have an idea for a new snack that follows the keto diet. Well, there are already protein snacks in the grocery store. Go stand there like a stalker for a half an hour and keep track of who picks things up and puts them down and who leaves them in their cart. That to me is so fascinating that I think Google Analytics has convinced us all that that's the only research we need. One of the challenges is Google Analytics gets us disconnected from the work we do in empathy, but importantly, it gets us disconnected from observation and interaction, which for a startup can be two of the greatest sources of customer or potential customer intel that we can gather. I often say to people, think about a situation that's like yours, think about where you could go sit and just watch what people are doing. Think about, could you intercept people? I had students do this wonderful thing one day in the spring semester where they simply intercepted people walking around the downtown part of Portland that had coffee in their hands. And they said, oh, we were looking for a place to get a coffee. I see you have a coffee. Where's it from? what do you like about it? Like they made pretend they were mock customers. And through interaction, one of the things the class collectively discovered, they had 118 learnings about coffee and why people buy coffee in downtown Portland. We often make things much more difficult than they need to be. Now, you are not going to go out and make a venture pitch and ask someone for $100 million if you're like, I've interacted with some people on a corner and I observed them in the grocery store. So the other thing is you got to think about what stage you're at. If I'm out asking people for money, I'm about to do that type of raise for this new startup venture I'm working on. Now I have a lot more research. In fact, I've purchased some research. I've done a more formal survey. So I invest at levels that are appropriate. At startup, often observation in the concentric rings of talking to friends, talking to friends, talking to friends, gets us enough intel to know directionally if our idea is good or not good. Richard, I was glad that you mentioned that it wasn't a lockstep process, but if you introduce the concept to a startup entrepreneur, they're going to see five stages and they're going to want to go through each of those five stages in steps. What advice do you have for them on how to make it a fluid concept and how you can reverse or maybe skip a step? Yeah. So one of the things I often think about this process like the stage gate process of product development, where you put some sort of gate between each stage. And if you don't meet the criteria to pass through the gate, you put it in reverse. One of the things that's interesting, when I get to, let's say, problem definition, step two, I go out and ask 10 or 15 people, well, in this situation, is this a real problem for you? And if those 10 or 15 people, the vast majority say no, I think, huh, I better go back and look at my work in empathy because I didn't define the problem right. One of the things that I try to say to people, of course, you can do this in a very linear way, but you might make it to the end to find out that you got to back all the way up to the beginning. So you should think about how you make the tool effective for you. In ideation, this is the area where I often say to people, here's how I want you to think about where you spend your most time. Most time is an empathy. Second most time is an ideation. And then definition, prototyping, and testing, you spend whatever time you spend on them. Now, a lot of people say, well, why do you focus on ideation? Because we need lots of good ideas to get the right idea. 
Another thing that I often encourage people to think about in design thinking and ideation, it starts with the golden rule that we value quantity over quality. So when we're first coming up with ideas, we want every idea. We don't prejudge any idea. There's no criticism of any idea. You can list the stupid idea you've ever had. You know, you can list ideas that aren't technologically feasible. The point is to try to do as much thinking as possible. Now, the other thing with ideation, I really want people to get out of their own comfort zone. We're all familiar with brainstorming. Brainstorming is great. Well, brainstorming doesn't always work, for example, if the people doing the brainstorming are introverted. So I also like an adaptation of brainstorming called brain writing, where everyone writes down their ideas silently first and then in round robin shares them. So if you're in a situation where, let's say, the three of us were ideating together and I was an introvert, hopefully one of us would be smart enough to say, okay, we've got to recognize Here's how we might improve the process by giving the introvert some time to think and to get their ideas listed out first. So brainstorming and brainwriting are great. But then we need a whole bunch of other techniques. There's a technique called SCAMPER, which stands for substitute, combine, adapt, modify, put to another use, eliminate or rearrange. And so in SCAMPER, you take an idea and you literally have to come up with one thing for each of those categories for the idea. Then you end up having a whole bunch more ideas. Another one of my favorite techniques in ideation is called Three Famous People, where you go, okay, so we're going to launch this new electric vehicle. What would Donald Trump, Oprah Winfrey, and Tom Brady think about that? And you use the lens of three very different people to figure out what they would think of the idea, and this often leads to more ideas. And it starts to let you also refine potentially your marketplace by understanding niches better. In ideation, it's a moment where you want to spend some quality time. Then, of course, you have to have evaluation criteria. My favorite three are desirable, feasible, and viable. Someone's got to want it. You got to be able to do it, and you got to be able to make money doing it. If you don't pass the desirable, feasible, and viable test, can the idea. In ideation, the goal is to get to one idea. What I often find in ideation is I can't narrow it down to one idea, so I got to back up and either redefine or go back to the audience to make sure the idea is right. This is also why I think design thinking fits with this new paradigm of idea, customer, build, brand, market. So after ideation... Sure, I could figure out my visualization. And in prototyping, really, I am just creating the simplest visual I can create to go get feedback from the audience. But I might be tempted before I even do that to ask a few people, is this really a good idea? That's the way. One of the things that I think is tough about the tools of entrepreneurship is many people feel beholden to them. My view of them is the tools have to serve you. I mean, the business model canvas is another tool that many people have used and like. I can't tell you the number of times I've been in a situation where someone's like, well, I don't need partners, but what I really need is this, that, or the other thing. I'm like, great, get rid of the key partners box and substitute this, that, or the other thing. You can do that. You can do anything you want with that tool. I mean, the point is it is meant to give you a prototype of what a business opportunity could be in terms of its ability to capture, deliver, and create value. So you do it however you want to do it. What I tend to find with entrepreneurs, there's the two branch paths. There are the people who aren't disciplined enough to use any tool. So you got to get those people disciplined. And then there are the people who think the tools are there to be used exactly as they are and you can't deviate one iota. 
So those people, you've got to sort of introduce this notion of, well, the tool is really there to serve you. So I think in consulting, what I'm trying to do with design thinking is I'm trying to say, if at some point something doesn't feel right, go back to the prior step and make sure you did the prior step right. Or go to the end and do your testing, and then you can ask the question, okay, that part didn't seem right in testing it turns out it isn't right. So why is that? I like the process because it creates lots of places where you could deviate and be okay, but stay on path and also be okay. Well, Richard, I appreciate your insights into what I consider a fascinating area of entrepreneurship and I encourage all entrepreneurs and fledgling entrepreneurs to further look into the concept of design thinking. If someone wanted to speak with you about consulting opportunities, how would they reach you, Richard? So easiest way is to either get connected on LinkedIn. So if you just search Richard Bilodeau, B-I-L-O-D-E-A-U, and look for the University of Southern Maine, you'll find me. You also can reach out to me at rbilodeauconsults at gmail.com. Well, thank you very much for your time, Richard. Thanks for listening to our Favorite Tools for Entrepreneurs podcast. As always, you can head over to profspirit.com to check out more resources and courses designed for you, the entrepreneur. Please follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and others to get the most up-to-date information as it is released. Mm -hmm.